and welcome to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, the Director of Resources and Technology, and with me today is a longtime friend of the NMVVRC, Dr. Mario Gaburi. Dr. Gaburi has worked on various projects with us since we became a center way back in 2017. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Gaburi. He is the Dean of the Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences at the University of New Haven. He is formerly Deputy Director of the Office for Victims of Crime in the U.S. Department of Justice, and he has more than four decades of professional, government, and academic experience. Here's some of that experience. He was a gubernatorial appointee on the Connecticut Victims' Rights Enforcement Advisory Commission, and he serves on the Connecticut Human Trafficking Council. He's also served twice on the advisory board to the Connecticut Office of the Victim Advocate. He was the founding president of the American Society of Victimology, and he's a very well-published researcher and author of the 2010 book, Crime Victims' Rights and Remedies. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gaburi. Thank you very much. Uh, to get us started today, I, I know that you are recognized as something of a historian of the profession of victim services in the U.S., and, and maybe that's a good place to start. Um, could you give a bit of history about the victims' rights movement in the U.S. and how activism has affected both the criminal and civil court systems? Sure. Um, and actually, I think the history is very important, and I'd like to go back to a little bit before the United States, uh, oh, because I think we need that that full perspective. So literally, this has been developing over, you know, a thousand or more years from, um, you know, very early times. And in fact, if you if you think about it, and I'm going to be making this, we're not going to spend uh, as much time on uh, this as uh, you might want, because, you know, a thousand years is a long period of time. But at the very beginning, you actually didn't have an organized criminal justice system in the sense that the government would be uh, vindicating, you know, victims' uh, rights or pursuing, uh, you know, remedies on behalf of victims. Frankly, the civil justice system, such as it was, uh, was really the first thing that was created. Uh, and this was good from a number of perspectives, right? Uh, you know, that um, uh, victims uh, really were in charge of the system at that point in time, Uh and there were some inequities, though, in, in, in that, you know, if a victim uh, had a large family or a large group of friends that could literally go out and pursue the offender and uh, mete out justice uh, in whatever way, return property or vindicate uh, their uh, victimization in some way, uh, that was great. But if a victim did not have the resources to do it on their own, they were kind of left, uh, you know, left in the lurch. Uh, in addition to that, there was no governance mechanism to what sort of uh, quote unquote justice was actually, um, you know, implemented. So, you know, there was no such thing as our constitutional guarantee of, uh, you know, against cruel and unusual punishment. In fact, many times the, the punishment was very cruel mm -hmm. that was meted out. And so over time, it was uh, pretty apparent that if a civilized society was going to evolve, there was going to have to uh, be some government, you know, intervention or some governance uh, at some point. In fact, 
I won't mention a lot of historical figures, but Hammurabi, who many of our listeners will have uh, heard about, at least at some point in time from early history, uh, created what we all know is called the Code of Hammurabi. And one of the uh, elements of the Code of Hammurabi is actually one of the very first uh, pieces of crime victims' rights legislation, if you will. And what Hammurabi decided was that uh, in order to have you know, a civilized society where there would be uh, commerce and uh, the free flow of, uh, of goods, etc., uh, so that you could sort of build a society based on, you know, a solid economy, uh, that the clans were going to have to swear off the blood feuds that would occur at those times, uh, and they would have to allow the state, right, the, the code mm-hmm. uh, under Hammurabi's governance uh, as the emperor to implement whatever the right, you know, whatever the right uh, remedy was going to be. So if uh, things were stolen, it was the government that would get them back for you. If someone was killed, in fact, this is sort of the beginning of what we would look at today as almost a restitution or a compensation system, you know, there there would no longer be the killing of another person, which was what the blood feuds would do, right? right. What they would say is, well, in, in lieu of that, uh, the, the, the affected family is going to get, you know, whatever. X numbers of, you know, livestock or land or or whatever. And so you go all the way back to that early uh, time and you see the very beginnings of uh, the justice system. It really catapulted itself uh, during the early development of uh, England. Uh, and what was going on at that point in time was that uh, the, um, the, the government Really, there was a there's, there was an ulterior motive at that point, and in in terms of creating the early court system, and here's where we'll see a transition over to the U.S. Because frankly, we brought a lot of the common law court system from England to the very beginning of the U.S. colonies. Okay, so what was um, going on at that point in time was that as England was establishing its government and establishing its courts for a variety of reasons, uh, they also needed to acquire tax dollars or revenue of various sorts. And one of the things that they did, which actually was unfortunate, was they decided that uh, rather than offenders needing to pay uh, restitution to victims, that offenders needed to pay fines and penalties to the state. And so it actually became a way in which uh, the early uh, English uh, government uh, you know, funded much of its operations, particularly in um, the courts. What happened at this point was the victims <clears throat> were really losing control, you know, and they were no longer prominent in the, uh, the system. And so fast forward to uh, the United States, we have the early development of the public prosecutor. In fact, uh, the University of New Haven is located in the state of Connecticut, which is where I'm from. And the state of Connecticut actually had the very first public prosecutor uh, office in the United States. And then this, qu- this quickly took uh, you know, took off. And so the public prosecutor began to uh, prosecute, obviously, the criminal cases. And most people are familiar with the criminal court system. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, main, the main distinction is that the criminal court system is, uh, you know, it is the government that is bringing the uh, the legal matter forward, that is prosecuting the matter. It's the resources of the government that is, uh, you know, trying to uh, determine what justice is and uh, like that. The civil system still exists, right? It actually Mm -hmm. is very robust in the United States of America. Uh, It is the system that is 
run by the victim. They have to hire their own attorney. Uh, they have to either work with that attorney or otherwise figure out how to fund uh, the um, the uh, prosecution, if you will, right, the pursuit of their case in civil court. And the other uh, major distinction is what you can see at the end of the lawsuit. Um, right. For victims in the civil side, they're in charge of it, and most of what they're going to get would be money to pay for the damages that they suffered. Uh, they can't, you can't, you know, an individual, a private individual can't put someone in jail. That happens on the criminal side. So right. a lot of history in a few minutes, but I think it's really important to uh, understand that distinction goes way back to, uh, you know, uh, the earliest days of the development of, uh, of the law. Yeah, I, that, that was a, a fascinating historical overview. And I think the first time someone has referenced Hammurabi on the podcast. So uh, that's a feather in your cap as well. Um, and it's a great segue into sort of the next thing I wanted to talk about. And, and you touched on it um, at the end there, the difference between the criminal and civil court systems. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to tie that into some uh, of our focus, which is mass violence. And, you know, from what we have been able to learn from our work with mass violence victims, um, including those folks who are survivors of, we call them in in the NMVVRC, large-scale criminal incidents, largely because we can't think of a better name for them. But, But some examples would be the Flint water crisis in Michigan, the Deepwater Horizon oil rig disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. So large-scale incidents that cause death and injury and have a very large impact, but have roots or, or, or possible procedures that touch on both criminal and civil court systems. The, the folks that we deal with don't really understand the difference between criminal justice and civil justice and, relatedly, criminal courts and civil courts. Um, and as you've pointed out, one is led by the government, the criminal system, and one is led by citizens or, or victims themselves, the, the civil process. Is, is that, does that have any, um, like in, in a mass violence incident, in a civil case, who would bring that? Is, is there some sort of way that people can get together and say, hey, let's all hop in on this together? Or Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, very important. And, uh, in fact, uh, it, um, the, the thing that I think the thing that's important to just keep in mind as we deal with this particular issue is it's the very same incident that we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So it is, whether it's the individual crime victim or whether it is, you know, a, uh, a, a school uh, shooting or a mass violence incident of another site, or whether it is a, uh, an economic uh, or I meant to say an ecological or an mm-hmm. environmental uh, criminal act. Uh, it's the same thing that happened, but it's two different parallel processes uh, that have uh, you know different people who are in charge of making the decisions and different people and different outcomes that are possible from them. So now to speak more specifically about the uh, mass, uh, you know, incidents, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, this is actually very, uh, very um, important in the early days of uh, the crime victims rights movement in um, the United States. Uh, when, when, you know, so let me start on what the government side is here, and then we'll talk about the individual or group civil side. So on the, uh, on the government side, uh, very early on, um, 
there was an effort to figure out how can we best fund, you know, these these programs, these crime victims programs. In fact, you know, the Medical University of South Carolina, which I believe hosts the National uh, uh, Mass you, Violence Resource uh, Center, uh, you know, is uh, one of uh, one of the uh, wonderful recipients. When I was uh, deputy director of the Federal Office for Victims of Crime, we uh, we awarded many uh, grants to MUSC to pursue some of this, you know, early research and early crime victims response. All right, so how are we going to fund all this? Well, you know, in many instances, the individual perpetrators of crime may have very, very limited resources, okay? Not always, but very, very limited resources. However, some of the earliest amounts of money, large amounts of money that ended up being uh, you know, put into the crime victims fund, ordered by courts to be uh, put into the crime victims fund to be redistributed for a variety of different reasons. Most of it, 95% of it goes to direct victims assistance or compensation. Uh, you know, the these came from uh, corporations who, uh, you know, had, uh, you know, damaged you know, in the environment or who had affected very negative outcomes on, you know, large populations. So there's a real tie-in to the um, funding of the crime victims uh, programs today uh, in the the Federal Crime Victims Fund, which is where this money comes from. And it funds, you know, rape crisis shelters and child abuse uh, programs and Mothers Against Drunk Driving and homicide survivors and many, many other, uh, you know, groups that work with Native American populations and other uh, types of victims. So this is really important. And it ties right into this when you don't have, uh, you know, a, a simple uh, you know, even though it's catastrophic for the individuals involved, it's, you know, it's not just one individual harming another individual and, and, and really having no funds there that could be used. All right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. take it over to the, uh, you know, to the civil side, uh, that very same thing could have occurred, whether it is the, you know, the, the mass shooting event or the, uh, environmental, uh, you know, event, which may have criminal, uh, ramifications, mm -hmm. Uh, but you have uh, identified uh, either a uh, an intentionally wrong, you know, wrongdoer, right? The person who actually did something, or right. maybe a, a negligent uh, party or a negligent third party that should have that had some standard that they should have adhered to, which would have protected uh, these individuals or or should have protected the community in some way. Very interesting is that. In most criminal cases, uh, you do have to actually have an intentional wrongdoing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you have to have what we call mens rea in the law, right? Guilty uh, mind. The right? guilty mind, right? And there are there there are there are some negligence. You know, there's some negligence uh, in the criminal law, but it's really uh, not predominant. Mm -hmm. However, in the civil side negligence is a very well-known cause of action, right. which can accompany, you know, um, all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, um, other, um, you know, torts, as they're called, or causes of action that have damaged uh, people. So uh, it's very interesting that you could identify groups and they can't usually, they can't hide behind, uh, well, I didn't do it on purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Well, no, you were negligent because there was a, there was a standard of practice that you didn't adhere to. And because you didn't do that, people were harmed. And, you know, and uh, particularly when you can find these uh, uh, either, into, you know, 
organizations that are directly involved or negligent or um, third parties that should have known and could have prevented something, they may have what are called, what are referred to informally as the deep pockets. Right. <laughs> and these are the individuals or the corporations or the large organizations uh, that can be made uh, to pay, one, to pay back specifically harmed individuals like the surviving families of a mass shooting, for example, or the Flint, Michigan victims, uh, you know, uh, et cetera. Uh, and they could be made to pay those individuals, but they could also be ordered to do other things, you know, like pay towards the cleanup or contribute uh, in civil fines to the crime victims fund, et cetera. Right. So there, it's the same incident that occurred, but you can have a different, uh, you can sort of bring in different parties to be held accountable and you can, you can identify and recapture funds or capture funds to pay for, you know, trying to achieve at least some level of, you know, of healing or some level of, uh, you know, recompense for what was the wrongdoing. Right. Very good description of, of the difference between the two systems. Now to sort of get into some of the the experiences of individuals in the criminal versus the civil. On our podcast before, we've talked with several folks whose profession is to provide victim assistance and support during criminal trials. You know, we've talked with folks like Clarissa Whaley, who was involved in the Charleston Church shooting and providing support to victims here. Um, but those are, I mean, she is part of the legal system, the prosecutorial system that, that's run by the government. Are there victim service professionals or advocates who provide similar kinds of services during those civil cases who can support victims um, who might be part of a, of a class action or, or a large group um, seeking justice against someone who is negligent? So that is, uh, you know, very, very variable across um, jurisdictions and across, uh, you know, the various states. And uh, so, you know, on the criminal side, you've referred to uh, every state has, I, I believe we have some majority of the states, it's probably around 29 or 30 that actually amended their state constitutions to provide for victims' rights. But every single state uh, in the nation has at least achieved uh, the basic, you know, human, uh, excuse me, the basic victims' rights uh, that are, uh, you know, required uh, and are delivered through the criminal justice system. And of course, there is the federal uh, system as well that has the uh, various rights that are assured at the federal system. So this does not occur in the same way in the civil system, okay. similar to how the individual uh, or group of individuals who are harmed have to move the case forward themselves and hire their uh, own attorney, etc. Uh, you know, there's there, the, the prosecutor's office and the victims advocates who might be associated with the prosecutor's office or a victim services office within the state uh, are in general uh, not going to. I don't think that they're uh, really you're going to find any instances of them being involved in the civil uh, case. Right. I could be, kind of I could be wrong because there is some leeway there and I'll talk about that. 
you know, in a, in a bit, but for the most part, that is not going to occur. However, nonprofit organizations that do um, service, uh, provide services and support uh, for victims of crime uh, might be able to do that. And in fact, the, the their problem is usually going to be, you know, they're stretched very thin and there are, are not enough, you know, resources. So they have to prioritize and they have to be very, very careful. <clears throat> but there's nothing to say that, uh, you know, that a group that supports, uh, you know, sexual assault victim or you name the type of victim, drunk, drunk driving, crash survivors, et cetera, uh, homicide survivors couldn't also provide, um, you know, some support to the victim during the pendency of a civil case. Uh, also, the civil attorney, that office could certainly hire, uh, you know, a qualified uh, mental health professional or someone, you know, with this background and ability and, you know, and credentialing to, uh, you know, provide that support. But as a general rule, that uh, support is not going to be provided by the government during the um, civil matter. Gotcha. That, that, I mean, that's a, I, I think an important distinction. And I actually, I mean, I didn't know that, that uh, the, the sort of nonprofits and of course, as you mentioned, the sort of suing attorneys, the attorneys for the plaintiffs could, could actually provide that. That's a, that's important information. In fact, they should. I mean, yeah. one of the things they really, this should become part of the standard of practice for civil attorneys is not to lose sight of the fact that uh, just because it's a different, uh, you know, legal system that you're working in, that the victims uh, should absolutely get the support during uh, the civil, uh, the civil trials. Great point. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, one sort of interesting phenomenon that arises sometimes is what refer to as a dual case where a crime will be tried by a prosecutor or a state's attorney you know, in the criminal process that you described earlier. And at the same time, there will be a civil case, you know, whether it's a, a negligence suit or a wrongful death or, or, or something like that um, by victims and survivors who band together and, and bring a civil action. Um, can you tell us about some of the nuances or the, the inherent challenges that uh, dual cases bring? <clears throat> so it is the area that really presents the uh, greatest, uh, you know, potential for conflict uh, and the greatest potential for discord between the prosecutor's office and you know the state side of things uh, and the you know victims or uh, their attorney on the civil side, uh, and and that really loops back to the way in which defense counsel uh, are usually defending uh, their cases on the criminal side. Keep in mind that the burdens of proof, and this is something I should have mentioned at the outset, the burden of proof is very different from a criminal trial to a civil trial. We've all heard beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a very, very, very high standard of proof that you've got to uh, reach in order to um, have a, a criminal conviction. And that's because we're talking about taking someone's liberty and potentially someone's life away. And that's a very serious matter. On the civil side, not that it's unserious, but the fact is, in, like, in all likelihood, all you can do is take somebody's money away. Mm -hmm. So we don't have that very high standard, the one that we use for life and liberty. It is a standard of preponderance of evidence, which basically means more likely than not. It's like the 51% 
you know, standard. So it's a, it's a very low standard on the civil side, you know, to win the case. And so what happens on the criminal side is that the defense counsel uh, is looking for any way that they could enter any reasonable, quote unquote, reasonable doubt into the minds of the jury uh, so that they will find that there is reasonable doubt, which means they will acquit the defendant. And one of the key mechanisms for doing that is blaming the victim Mm -hmm. and trying to find ulterior motives on behalf of the victim uh, that they can use. They're usually very, very spurious. They're not, there's no truth or validity behind them at all, but that never stopped someone from trying to uh, enter that level of, you know, potential reasonable doubt uh, into uh, the minds of uh, the jury. One of the ways that the defense uh, will do this if they know that there's a civil suit going on, but even if they just think one is anticipated. So if you're the witness, I would say, uh, well, you know, uh, I understand that you've got a civil suit going here and you stand to benefit greatly with a financial, you know, uh, a financial award from that civil suit. So, you know, isn't that why you're, you know, testifying to these things? And isn't that why you're cooperating with the prosecutor? So what happens because of that is, prosecutors and you know this is something that um, you know their job is to reach you know right right. well so get convictions actually their job is to find justice but but what that translates to is and and the reason it and 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 listen there's been a lot of wrongfully convicted people and there's a whole effort our university is very much involved with our forensic science area in uh getting uh you know uh people acquitted uh, you know, who were wrongfully convicted. So I'm not trying to discount, you know, that part of it at all. And I know that you're not at all. No. But what happens is because so few cases, really only a fraction of all the incidents of crime uh, ever get where someone's uh, investigated, arrested, brought all the way to a jury trial where the ultimate question of guilt or innocence is going to be reached, that, you know, it's not unlikely that, you know, there's a lot of those cases where conviction is in fact the just result. But I just mm-hmm. wanted to make sure people understand that we're very balanced in the way that we view these things. But what happens is uh, the prosecutor is very concerned about this. And so it's created conflict between civil attorneys uh, and victims and the prosecutor uh, in these various cases. So what some states have done, and what's the big issue, right? Why can't why can't the civil suits just come afterwards, right? And, and, and the problem is that they're usually short uh, statutes of limitations for civil suits to be brought. Uh, and so if the criminal case takes a long time, and some of them, them can, it can take, you know, if jurisdiction's really backed up, you can have, you know, years pass before cases are brought uh, to trial in the criminal side. And so that, so accommodations get worked out one way or uh, another whenever possible on an individual basis. But there are also states that have looked at extending the statute of limitations or tolling the statute of limitations in certain civil cases to give more time for the criminal case to occur so that the victim doesn't um, have to make a very difficult decision between their civil case or cooperating at some level with the prosecutor. So this is a, the fact that it's the same incident as we talked about before, but it's going to be pursued uh, in two different you know, parallel court systems, if you will, uh, creates a massive uh, uh, conflict. And, and it is really something that, that we all have to pay attention to, to work it out so that the victim doesn't end up, you know, uh, disadvantaged in any way. Right. I mean, so are there circumstances in which 
a, a plaintiff's attorney, you know, the attorney for someone who's bringing a civil suit and a prosecutor would cooperate, share information, or do they try and keep arm's length from one another, do you think? Well, so when you're talking about any evidence that would be uh, potentially used in a criminal case, uh, prosecutors can get any anything that they want, you know, mm-hmm. through subpoena, uh, and they will and they should. And so, you know, it's not like a, it's not like a co- level of cooperation, like a collusion for, you know, uh, you know, negative purposes, right? It's, right? Not, it's not a conspiracy, right? Or no, like no, none of that. But, but uh, you know, if, if there's evidence out there, in all likelihood, the prosecutor through their investigation is going to have most of it first, anyway. Okay. Uh, uh, the benefit for the um, civil attorney is that unless a, a case is sealed, and many of them are, you know. Things that are um, introduced in the criminal uh, case are available subsequently to the civil attorney to use as well. Okay, so you you would know who the witnesses with the good information are at least. Yeah, and you'd know you would know what the evidence is, what the physical evidence is, etc. Okay, all right. Uh, the last question that I have for you, and this has just been a fascinating conversation, and and as as uh, expected, you are just sort of a, a fount of knowledge about how the the, the legal system works. Um, we're seeing mass violence victims and survivors of mass violence events seeking remedies for their, their losses, whether they be, um, property or lives of family members and psychological trauma that they've experienced in the civil courts. And a recent example of, of that situation is what, what has recently happened in, in Sandy Hook. Um, which was the site of a, a, a massive um, school shooting uh, many years ago. And nine uh, families of victims uh, have recently agreed to a rather large settlement, I think to the order of $73 million, against the gun manufacturer, uh, Remington. So that it was, from my understanding, it was a settlement, not necessarily a, a verdict that was was reached. Uh, that's a that's an interesting development, and I'm curious if you can give us any insight into whether civil actions like that actually achieve something larger than the seventy three million dollar monetary reimbursement uh, that the families got, or is it pretty much just limited to that money? So. You know, Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut is about a 45 minute ride from the university. I'm very familiar, you know, with the town and very familiar with that horrible, horrible uh, incident and that horrible day. Um, The um, the fact of the matter is these families uh, did uh, did heroic uh, things by coalescing and by, uh, you know, one, the the public awareness and the stick-to-itiveness that they, you know, showed in terms of uh, fighting back, uh, you know, against all odds, frankly, given uh, some of the uh, legal obstacles that they faced. Uh, it's just an absolutely remarkable outcome. Uh, the, uh, you know, the monies, I don't have any direct understanding other than what's already out in public about what they're uh, intentions would be uh, to do with the money. And there's certainly mm-hmm. plenty, sure. there's plenty of individual uh, you know, restitution and compensation and services and all kinds of important things that are necessary for these families. But um, I get the sense that this uh, group of Sandy Hook uh, parents who uh, 
uh, you know, again, are, are absolute heroes, mm-hmm. um, are going to, you know, at one way or another, I'm not sure what's going to be in terms of the use of specific funds, but one way or another, they're going to continue to uh, be a platform for advancing, um, you know, our legislation, our policy, our, our uh, preventive efforts uh, to try to, uh, you know, bring at some level an end to, uh, you know, not only just the school shootings, but mass violence in general, mass shootings in general, but obviously their focus is on, uh, you know, the, the, the terrible incidents of school shootings that continue to occur um, in uh, the U.S. So in, in answer to your sort of second part of the question, I actually do believe, and it's, it's thanks to the Sandy Hook families and their heroism and their perseverance to reach this outcome that they reached, um, I think that you're going to see you know, more families and more affected communities uh, taking advantage of the ground that they have sort of pioneered, right? They blazed the trail. And I think you are going to see more of this. And I think it's going to have a very good effect. In fact, it absolutely relates back. And I'll close with this. It absolutely relates back to some of the very early beginnings of the civil uh, litigation movement uh, in the United States of America, which was to bring these uh, right. Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, third parties, Remington, and no one from Remington was in the school when this occurred, right, right. But, they but, were, but their weapon, yeah. but their weapon was. And so what, you know, what, what was done relative, right. Uh, done or, or what negligence occurred. And obviously this is what happened in this particular suit. But I think what you're going to find is that this will now blaze the trail for other, uh, communities and other mass violence, uh, victims, groups, to say, we can have this kind of uh, outcome. We can help affect policy. We can affect, uh, excuse me, prevention. We can we can promote prevention of these mass violence incidents, whether they are shootings, uh, environmental injustices, uh, you know, or any number of other um, negative uh, things that occur to large groups of people. I think that's a great place to leave it. I, I mean, that's that's a kind of a an important message and and, and maybe a hopeful one that the heroic families from Sandy Hook will empower uh, a larger number of folks to, to seek justice, uh, whether that be in, in a civil court or in a criminal court. Obviously, if it's, if it's as you said, if it's the citizens doing it, it would be in the civil court. Um, but I think that those kinds of, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, those kinds of civil actions and financial penalties against companies are motivating to those yeah. companies. They, yeah. they will potentially change some of their business practices or marketing practices or production practices so as to avoid future judgments. That is exactly uh, correct. And that's what we've seen over several decades already with the civil justice for victims, um, you know, movement. And uh, that's what I hope occurs in the future. Great. Well, Mario, thank you so much for sharing your vast historical knowledge and, and systems knowledge with us. I think that our listeners will really benefit from hearing you talk about the differences between civil and criminal processes and take away some really important points from what we've talked about today. Really appreciate having you on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Sure. And this has been another episode of the Mass Violence Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>